This podcast discusses content that may be triggering for some listeners. Please be advised discussions include gambling language, types of gambling, and addiction. Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Addiction Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the New York Council on Problem Gambling. Across New York State, we have seven problem gambling resource centers dedicated to connecting individuals to care. We're here to increase awareness about problem gambling and advocate for treatment and support for persons adversely affected by problem gambling. Gambling is defined as risking something of value on a game of chance for a desired reward. Problem gambling or even gambling addiction can affect anyone at any time in their life. It might not be talked about or even overlooked because it often can be easily hidden for a long time. Our hope is this podcast shines a light on problem gambling and we can share resources and information to help those who need us. The views and opinions shared by guests may not reflect the views and opinions of the New York Council on Problem Gambling. Hello, everybody. Thank you again for joining us for this edition of the Hidden Addiction Podcast. And very excited today for National Veterans and Military Families Month. We have very special guests with us. And Jason, Allison, I'll give you a second to introduce yourself in a minute. Again, my name is Jeffrey Wearsbicki. I'm with the Western and Finger Lakes Problem Gambling Resource Center with the New York Council on Problem Gambling. With me as well as Colleen Jones. Colleen, how are you? Hello, everybody. So, Jason, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself, um, just a little bit about your title, where you work, maybe a little bit about your background, just so we have an idea of sort of what you've been up to before you met us. Sounds good. Thank you. And thank you, Jeff and Colleen, for having us. Um, So my name is Jason Palomera. I'm the Director of Veteran and First Responder Engagement for Forge Health. Um, We provide behavioral health services, so mental health and substance programs for active duty military all veterans, all first responders. And let me just clarify, veterans, regardless of discharge status, all first responders and their families. Um, I retired from the New York City Police Department in September of 2020 for 20 years. Uh, Prior to retiring, I was in their peer support team. Um, And during the latter part of my career, I became a crisis counselor for the Long Island Crisis Center, uh, which kind of uh, all together led me into the, 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 the behavioral health space and really what led me over to Forge. That's fantastic. Thank you for all that you do for the community. We really do appreciate it. Allison, it's nice to meet you. And uh, why don't you, you know, take a second, just introduce yourself, your title, and what you've been up to before you met us. Great. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, So my name is Allison Lamard. I am one of two CPCs at the New York Harbor VA, and I'm in the Suicide Prevention Program. And the CPC role, which is a community engagement and partnerships coordinator, quite a mouthful, we usually just say CPC. So it's a recent addition to the VA Suicide Prevention Program, which has been in existence for uh, almost 20 years. Uh, The primary focus of my role is on collaborating with local communities, uh, including service members, veterans and their families, any community-based organization, So it could be mental health clinic, uh, hospital, it could be a food pantry, any kind of organization that might serve a veteran. Uh, We uh, collaborate with them to implement community-based interventions for suicide prevention. So by training, I am a clinical social worker and I have worked in the mental health field for pretty much all of my professional life. Uh, I was actually working 
at a school for kids with special needs um, and was thinking about moving further on uh, with teaching. And I noticed that the kids would come out of the social worker's office very happy no matter what condition they went in there with. And I decided, you know, I want to make people feel happy when they see me. So I decided to uh, pursue an MSW and the rest is history, as they say. Thank you so much, Allison. It's, it sounds like a great program. I'm glad that's added to, um, you know, the services out there. And you're right, kids always do seem happy when they come out of counseling. <laughs> you know, somebody to talk to, they can't always talk to their parents. Allison, so my understanding, so we have a we have an amazing veterans coordinator on our staff, Jonathan Crandall, and I've learned so much from him over the years. Um, and if anyone out there is, is listening and you want to learn, talk to Jonathan, you can go to nyproblemgambling.org and reach out to Jonathan. But his trainings are incredible. I've learned so much about military culture. Um, I was not in myself in the military. Is Military culture is quite different than civilian culture, as I understand. Is there a struggle to get veterans into treatment? Uh, you're absolutely right. Military culture is really a unique subculture in the broader American culture. I myself haven't served in the military, and I also learned a lot from Jonathan. Um, I went to a lot of his uh, trainings, and um, I always come back uh, amazed and feeling like I really learned a lot. Um, but to your question, um, you might know that only about seven to eight percent of the U.S. population ever serve in the U.S. military, and many providers in the medical field, including uh, mental health and social services, they have never really been exposed to an informal education around military culture. Um, I remember uh, when I worked in other places prior to the VA, I myself wasn't exposed to military culture until I uh, began working at the VA like uh, almost 12 years ago. Um, military culture is different from civilian culture in a lot of ways, and Jason could probably attest to that more. Um, you know, as it prepares members of the members of the military for team cohesion and battle readiness, a big component of this is emphasis on maintaining physical and psychological readiness, as of course they can be called into duty at any time. But also there are some unique norms and values, uh, such as putting the group needs and the mission above self, values such as honor, integrity, commitment, loyalty, respect, devotion to duty, stoicism, uh, you know, communication within the chain of command. These are all unique to military culture when compared to uh, civilian culture, where there is, um, where we have this level of individuality, there's choices, uh, we can be emotional if we want to, uh, there's oftentimes an unclear chain of command, for instance. And like most things, there are upsides and downsides. So uh, while some of these values and uh, and behaviors that I just mentioned are useful for military service, post-military service, they can also sometimes become barriers to help-seeking behaviors. So oftentimes many veterans uh, uh, do believe that there are other veterans who need the services and the resources that the VA offers much more than they do, and they will opt not to use it. Um, similarly, uh, I think another way of uh, seeing this is uh, to think about what people in the military go through in terms of um, 
basic training, um, the conditions that they work under, they oftentimes have a lot of a greater tolerance for pain, uh, this level of stoicism that uh, oftentimes can prevent them from acknowledging uh, from acknowledging that they need help and for seeking help for things like mental health conditions. But also, you know, obviously, like anyone else who uses other healthcare systems, veterans also have choices and they can choose to seek help at the VA or not. We really hope that they do because there are a lot of services uh, there that I think uh, could be valuable. So I understand um, oftentimes military veterans do go into um, law enforcement and firefighters, first responders. So Jason, I'm wondering is, and, and maybe this is kind of a two-parter, in regards to first responders, is there a, a struggle to get first responders into treatment? And is there a difference between a first responder who may have been, been a civilian first and might be struggling with something or a first responder who is in the military and is struggling with something? Are there any differences? Are there similarities? What do you see? So great question. And um, I'm going to put on both hats. So I failed to mention I'm a Navy veteran as well. So you know, it's, it's, um, there's are a lot of similarities. So first and foremost, for, for both populations, recognizing that we need it in the first place, help that is, right? We gloss right over that. And we go into um, some of the other ones, confidentiality, trust, cultural competency by providers. Um, but knowing that we need it, uh, recognizing our unhealthy behaviors is the first step in actually getting that help, right? We could, we say a lot, reach out for help whether it's a veteran, whether it's active duty military, whether it's a first responder, any first responder, but we're not going to reach out for that help if we don't, we don't need it or we don't think we need it. Um, you mentioned, uh, Allison, you mentioned readiness and, and call and getting called into duty. And that goes into another one, fear, fear of being found unfit. So you might be in the military and have a security clearance that if you lose that security clearance, you lose a lot of your stability, your job stability. If you're in the police department, you're in the fire department, you're in any of the first responder professions, and you have a, a level of authority, if you 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 have security clearance in, in the police department, right? Um, and you have a fear that you're going to lose that status or that level of um, uh, of leadership, you're 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 more often going to not say something uh, or reach out and, and feel like I'm just going to keep it to myself because you're gonna you know you're you're in fear of losing losing that position so um those are just a few of the struggles in in getting a first responder or a veteran into treatment and yes you're right a lot of veterans go into and i'm going to touch on this maybe later too and as we go along but uh we we being veterans go into these service professions um you know uh they share some of the same intri intrinsic uh personality traits and, you know, helping a first responder or a veteran, uh, reminding them of what their, those traits are can be so valuable in their, in their treatment, because it's easy to, when you're in it, when you're in the, in the thick of it, the stress and the, the struggle, it's, it's hard to remember why you join these, these two groups in the first place. Um, so I know I gave you a lot there. Hopefully I answered the, um, your question. No, definitely. Definitely. So Jason, sticking with that a little bit, so it sounds like, um, and Allison, this is kind of a, a 
team question, I guess. Um, treatment plans must have to be tailored to veterans, tailored to first responders. And I don't, I don't know how we can kind of answer this one smoothly, but are there similarities in the treatment plans? Are there similarities in the approach? Um, are there different approaches depending on veterans or first responders? I don't know if, Allison, you might want to just discuss the, the treatment plan differences, maybe different approaches when it comes to veterans and military. And then Jason, you can kind of contrast if it's the same or different. That might be a good way for us to, to understand that. Right. So in this role that I'm in currently, I no longer work with veterans uh, on treatment plan. I no longer do that individual one-to-one -one work. Um, I did though uh, for uh, nine years before coming into this role. So here at the VA, every veteran's treatment plan is tailored to that particular veteran's uh, individual and unique needs, their own values and circumstances, uh, taking into account um, what matters most to the veteran, which is part of the VA's uh, whole health philosophy uh, for providing individualized care. So no matter if the veteran has a condition that many other veterans may have, their individual treatment plan is going to be individualized to their particular needs because it's going to be different from uh, the next person. Uh, so uh, it's really patient-centered. That's uh, our model, patient-centered and, uh, uh, you know, whole health, the whole person um, being taken into account. So that's typically how we do treatment plans at the VA. That's great. And that's, you know, that's that approach to the individual and the care that they need. That's that very similar to the way that we approach. And we're going to start talking about problem gambling shortly, but when our clients call us. But Jason, is that kind of the same way that the first responders um, treatment plans are kind of designed? It's it's very individualized, not so much a kind of cookie cutter program put into place to try to move someone along, but really giving them that special treatment. Absolutely. It's um, in collaboration with the client. Uh, we utilize evidence-based modalities when working with first responders, which include trauma-based uh, interventions, but not all first responders need trauma care. Uh, so it's it's important that um, we we use other modalities in addressing the, the different challenges they might have. Um, and we, we focus on that. A lot of overlap. Um, I know Try to we we try to sometimes separate first responder professions from from the veteran, but there, there's so much overlap. Um, you know, separating service member and a retiree, for example, from a first responder profession, both go through grieving processes. Processes, right? It's you're leaving something that you've spent so much time doing, you've devoted so much of your life doing, you've sacrificed so much of your life doing. Um, there, there's uh, and again, like you, you had mentioned a few times earlier that we, we, we leave these service professions as a veteran, um, a military, and we go into these, these, uh, first responder roles. Um, so there it's, it's, there's a lot of overlap. Um, but again, in collaboration with the client, there is no cookie cutter. Um, that's unethical, right? Um, it's, it, it's each first responder or veteran walking in the door is going to bring with them their own struggles, their own unique um, hurdles, um, and to to uh, address each one as the same as the last is um, it, it's it, you're working backwards. 
Yeah. Do you real quick, Jason, would you want to give out a phone number right now, just in case anybody listening wants to, you know, reach out and, and speak with you? Yeah, absolutely. So the a couple different ways, um, I'll give you the, the, the long and short of it. You can call, um, my direct line is 646-777-2350. You can call the main intake line, the main office, which is 888-224. 7312. You could uh, easily go on, you could email info at forgehealth.com. You can go on the website and there's a, a tab at the top. I think it's a contact us and you could self-refer, you could refer a client. Um, so there's, there's multiple ways to reach out, but mm-hmm. uh, like I tell all my, everybody, you, you, you could just call me direct, right? Um, as a first responder, we and a veteran, right? We've spent a lot of our life helping other people. And and often we get to a point where we actually are asking and reaching out for help. I I don't want to now turn over the back of my insurance card, call the 800 number, 888 number, you know, maybe go through two or three different operators to by that time you lost me. Right. So call me direct. I'll navigate it with you. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out together. I, I joke, half joking, but every, every defense attorney and bad guy and uh, people you don't want to have your personal number uh, has it after 20 years in the police department. So that number you could use. And, you know, if you, you need to share it with somebody that might need help, go right ahead. Awesome. Thank you. And Allison, um, you know, if you want to answer, I, I have a, we're going to get into gambling and gambling harms a little bit now. So if before, after you want to give out a phone number where um, someone can reach out to the VA Medical Center there in Brooklyn, you can, you know, feel free to, th- to throw that in in the middle here, just in case anyone listening just, you know, sure. has that urge to do it and, and gets that courage to do it. Have you, so veterans are at a higher risk for developing gambling problems. Veterans that are at a higher risk for many, many um, mental health issues, for suicide, can you talk just a little bit about why veterans might be at a higher risk and why, you know, why they might be hesitant if they are at a higher risk to actually reach out for that help? Right. Um, veterans are at a higher risk for problem gambling as they are for uh, suicide. Uh, research shows that like most other forms of addiction, Gambling is rising across all populations. And so, yes, veterans are impacted. uh, And they do have a higher risk for developing problem gambling and gambling disorders more than their civilian counterparts. Um, For one, people who uh, are in the military and especially those who are deployed overseas um, where there are slot machines on base, um, you know, they're at a higher risk for developing problem gambling. Um, uh, Slot machines are not in bases in the continental US, but they are uh, in all the overseas bases. And when people are in the military, um, this is a form of recreation for them, but of course it can quickly become an addiction. Um, And when they have problem gambling, which puts them at a greater risk for suicide, and already being in the military, which places them at a greater risk for suicide, it's, uh, you know, it can be a pretty bad combination. Uh, 
you know, problem gambling, unlike other addictions, uh, can be easily kept a secret for a very long time. Unlike other uh, addictions, like, say, uh, alcohol, where you can maybe smell it in someone's breath, or you may see them staggering or hear slurred speech, um, there are very little, if any, outward signs when someone uh, has a gambling problem. And uh, many do not seek help until they're faced with really dire consequences. Um, so there is a tremendous uh, lot of uh, feelings of shame and embarrassment and, uh, you know, add that to the stigma associated with uh, something like gambling. Yeah. Uh, many people just don't talk about it, uh, especially um, when you think about uh, finding people who might be able to understand what they're going through. Um, there aren't a lot of professional help that are specifically designated for problem gambling. So that makes uh, seeking uh, help uh, very difficult. There's not a lot of funding for uh, you know problem gambling compared to say uh, opioid addictions and other substance um, uses and uh, misuse. Um, so it's very hard for people to talk about it uh, many people do not screen for it as well. So uh, it just makes it very hard when you think back to what I mentioned earlier about uh, military culture, um, where there is this stoicism and, uh, you know, trying to just do it on your own. Um, it's really hard to ask for help. Yeah, I can imagine the, um, you know, it's great that there are people out there that are as caring as both of you just, I mean, I just met you, but it, it really sounds like, you know, your programs matter and it, and you really care about the people that you're working with. And, uh, you know, as far as on our end, because we do refer to, to community providers and stuff, we really appreciate the work you're doing. Can Jason, can you, so are the first responders, this is kind of similar with why first responders are at risk. Um, is there a difference between first responders, again, who were in the military and came from civilian life in regards to the risk for gambling problems and really any other you know, mental health issue or substance abuse? Are there similarities with veterans? Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind, too, in the first responder professions, you look at maybe cops who are uh, on patrol. You look at um, EMS or fire who are you know, in their, in their rigs, in their trucks, you know, waiting for the next job. There's lots of downtime. There's lots of waiting um, around. I, there was a officer, I remember a while back who, I don't know the rules as far as gambling goes in the state of New York uh, currently, but he was getting off of work. Uh, he would take the train and he would take the train to a neighboring state so he could place his bets and then take his train back home before he went home at the end of his tour um, it was that important for him and he was that, um, attached to it. Um, but you know, the exposure, uh, Allison, you mentioned the prevalence of gambling and suicide, um, the feelings of isolation, isolation doesn't have to be physically. It could be, I don't want to tell my spouse that I've financially bankrupted us. Um, the fear of exposure, uh, of that is, is very burdensome. So feeling like you've lost hope. You've lost um, a chance to get out of what you feel you've uh, dug yourself into. And that could be a very dangerous place. And that's where we see our first responders and veterans dying by suicide. Um, but yeah, um, a, lot, a lot of similarities again. Um, 
and uh, you know, I, I again, I hope I, I tend to go off. I, I just, I'm so passionate <laughs> about this stuff. And when we talk about losing our veterans and first responders to things like gambling, and there's so much help out there. Um, it, uh, yeah. No, it's completely understandable. And they, so, you know, it sounds like wrapped into all of that, there's a, there's still, and we know just in the community in general, there's still a stigma attached to gambling, gambling problems, gambling harm. There's a stigma attached to that. And I can imagine, you know, based on everything that you've been sharing as far as military uh, first responders, that that stigma is even a little more powerful, maybe within that population. What what would you say to veterans, to active military, to um, what would you say to someone who's hesitant to get help? Like if you could just give them that one personal message, maybe Jason, if you want to, since you were just going, what would you say to that person if they're listening right now? And then what would you say? What I would say is that you think you may be the only one going through what you're going through right now. You might feel that you're the only one that could possibly understand your struggle, but there's so many just like you going through the exact same thing, saying the exact same thing that nobody could possibly understand. Um, and it takes a lot of strength to get to the point where you're asking for help. Uh, but, but in doing that, you're not only helping yourself, you're helping others that are struggling just like you. Um, just one line is that you're not alone. You're not alone. And there's so much help out there. Confidential help, confidentiality and trust. We'll talk about a million times. I'm sure there's so much uh, trustworthy, confidential care uh, available to you, whether it's inside the military, whether it's outside in the VA, whether it's out in private um, providers like Forge, um, it's there just just waiting for you. And Allison, um same kind of the same idea what what would you say to that person that's just hesitant to reach out to the VA maybe you know same thing thinking they're the only one that's going through it or no one's going to understand and of course everybody listening this the all the phone numbers will be posted to with links and stuff so you can get the information but Alice how what do you say to someone who's just overwhelmed really yeah it can be pretty overwhelming as uh Jason mentioned earlier like most stigmatized uh, conditions, talking about the issue um, can be very hard, but it's really important um, to do so. So uh, I would say to anyone who is experiencing um, difficulties or problems with gambling, that uh, they are not alone. Uh, and, you know, there is help out there. Uh, one good form of help that I would also encourage um, any veteran to uh, seek out would be uh, like uh, peer support, a group setting where there are people with uh, similar experiences that can uh, let them feel less alone, less isolated. It can provide some hope that recovery is possible. Uh, and basically let people know that they're not alone because uh, that feeling of isolation that comes with, I imagine, holding onto a secret um, can just make uh, that person be at such greater risk for suicide. So definitely seek help. Uh, they can talk to any one of their VA providers and uh, 
that provider can help them to uh, find services within um, their neighborhood or that fits their particular situation. So if someone listening right now does decide that they want to reach out, what, what does that look like? So they reach out, they call someone, and if you could just really quickly kind of what that process is when they, they get someone on the phone and then how is how does that get started for them? Sometimes the fear of the unknown is kind of one of the reasons besides the stigma. They just, people just don't know what's going to happen. So if someone reached out for help, what, what does that look like if they reach out to the VA? So it depends on what part of the VA, but they can ask to speak. If they're already enrolled in the services at the VA, they already have a treatment team made up of a doctor, a social worker, um, a nurse. Um, so if they reach out to someone on their treatment team that may probably be familiar with them, know them, have some access to information about their particular condition, and they mentioned that um, they are experiencing a problem with gambling, uh, a social worker at the very least can uh, speak to that person and explore further what is going on with them, uh, what resources might be available in the community. Um, because at this point, our facility does not uh, provide services uh, directly related to problem gambling but there are many skilled uh, clinicians that uh, uses a lot of evidence-based treatment um, and one that is uh, pretty much um, uh, evidence-informed for problem gambling is CBT. And there are many skilled pro uh, providers in that area. <clears throat> I would also point out that um, the VA Myrick which is the Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center, they had produced a CBT uh, workbook called The Safest Bet. Um, it's, uh, anyone can download it, um, but if someone is experiencing uh, problems with gambling, they can also say to their clinician, their social worker, um, that, you know, I really wanna try to work on this and they could probably, wow, you know, get that um, CBT workbook and work through it. But uh, the first step is just really reaching out and, and speaking to someone. Um, for any veteran that's enrolled, if someone is not already enrolled, uh, they could, uh, they, there's a number of different ways that they can enroll. Mm -hmm. um, one is definitely to walk into the VA and uh, speak to someone. For sure, they could do that. Uh, and I'll, I'll be able to provide some other numbers before we end. That's great. These, and we, um, at this, so the local New York State Problem Gaming Resource Centers, we do have some specially trained clinicians. So if anyone is out there listening who might have a client, be working with someone, 1-833-437-3834. We can help connect you to a clinician who's trained to work with the gambling. That's 1-833 here to help. Now, unfortunately, research shows that gambling addiction has the highest rate of suicide among any addiction, with one in five attempting or completing suicide. And we also know, unfortunately, that the rate of suicide among veterans is one and a half times higher than the civilian population. 
So Allison, can you just talk a little bit about the work you're doing in suicide prevention? Uh, sure. <clears throat> so in, uh, in this part of the suicide prevention program, uh, I work with uh, community organizations, uh, anyone in the community, it could be a general community member. We are particularly looking out for uh, service members, veterans and their families to get involved. Any community organization that may serve a veteran, we are open to uh, collaborating with them. And the bulk of the work that we do is really through coalitions. So getting uh, like-minded individuals to uh, come together in a group to work on uh, one or more of the priorities that we have for this uh, CPC program. Um, so, uh, a big one for us is being able to identify who the veterans are in the community, especially when they're seeking services in non-VA facilities. And uh, this is important because uh, a lot of veterans are not using the VA for their health care. And when they do seek services outside, they typically don't self-identify. So we're really encouraging um, service providers to ask about military service and not merely asking, are you a veteran? Uh, because that that question doesn't resonate so well with veterans. And even if they are, they might say they're not. We find that to be particularly true for our female veterans for some reason. Um, so we really encourage asking, have you or a family member ever served in the US military or armed forces? Um, so that's one of our priority areas. And once, uh, someone has been identified as a veteran, we encourage uh, screening for suicide risk. Uh, just because veterans are, uh, as you mentioned, at a higher risk for suicide than the general population. Um, here at the VA, we use the Columbia Suicide Risk Screen, but really any, um, any screening tool that screens um, for suicide uh, is, is good. We also encourage community providers to uh, Engage in activities that encourage uh, connectedness to others, because uh, we know that social isolation is one of the biggest uh, risk factors for suicide. So anything that uh, gets someone socially connected with others in their community uh, for a cause or anything like that um, is really uh, beneficial. Also, uh, increasing um, Increase in care transitions uh, is a big priority for uh, the CEPC uh, and community-based suicide prevention effort. Uh, here, you know, transition, any transition in life can be pretty hectic, as you know, anybody who has gone through any transition or changes know that. So a big one could be uh, the transition from uh, military service back to civilian life. Oftentimes, uh, there can be some difficulties in adjustment for some people. Um, it's a big shift uh, coming back from the military into uh, civilian life. Others could be uh, being hospitalized in an inpatient uh, care setting, especially an inpatient psychiatric uh, setting. Uh, it's a very risky time in the uh, three months after discharge from an inpatient psychiatric setting. 
uh, individuals are at highest risk for suicide during that point. So uh, increasing um, the care transition is really important for uh, filling any gaps that might be there in the care. So making sure there's an outpatient provider, making sure uh, we do things like warm handoffs, uh, introduce the person to their next care provider, for instance, uh, for organizations to perhaps develop MOUs with the VA where possible, uh, having veteran peers, all those things uh, support connectedness and peer transition, care transition, sorry. Also, we're working on lethal means safety is one of our priority. Um, lethal means safety is really building in that time and space between a person uh, who has uh, suicidal thoughts and their ability to act on that thought. So uh, making sure that things that could potentially uh, inflict uh, self-harm uh, and lead to suicide are kept safe or restricted where possible. Uh, for the veteran population, um, you might already know that uh, firearm injuries uh, account for the largest number of veteran suicides. So keeping firearms safe is a, <clears throat> a big uh, priority for us. Uh, and we do distribute and give out a lot of uh, gun locks um, we talk about uh, maintaining safety when there's firearm in the home, which could possibly mean uh, sometimes when people are at, uh, are at high levels of distress and are at higher risk for suicide, maybe uh, keeping it off premises at, say, uh, a pawn shop or someplace that can keep it safe. Um, yeah. But also safety around other uh, things in the environment, such as uh, medications, um, ligatures, uh, sharks, anything that can be used for self-harm. So another big part of it is uh, working with our pharmacists and pharmacists at the VA and their care providers in terms of how uh, medications are uh, dispensed. So typically, say, for instance, a person may receive a 30-day supply of medication if if that person is at a higher risk for suicide, then um, you know a discussion around um, making, giving that person less medication might be beneficial. And uh, at the VA, we could do that with the pharmacist. Um, so they could uh, do a one week or two week medication or put in the medication in blister packets. So anything that builds in some time and space that gives the person who's having the suicidal thoughts some time to reconsider or perhaps for someone to intervene and of course for them to seek help. Uh, the Veterans Crisis Line is a great place for any veteran in uh, emotional or suicidal distress to really seek help and the number for that is uh, 988 and a veteran, anyone who's calling on behalf of a veteran can press one and be connected to the Veterans uh, Crisis Line. Thank you. Uh, so these are um, some of the big priorities for this program. And of course, um, the other part of the suicide prevention program that has uh, suicide prevention coordinators that works on a more individual level with the veterans um, that are at high risk and uh, really connecting them to wraparound services in the VA is also um, part of the broader suicide prevention program. Sounds like great work, Allison. Thank you. I appreciate we all we appreciate all the work you're doing. Um, 
Jason, the the fire the fire department, the NYPD, are there suicide prevention programs as well? Uh, maybe not coalition work, but are there suicide prevention programs in place for first responders and um, military? Yes, um, you you see those by way of your employee assistance units, your health and wellness sections, your peer support programs, and your your listeners can can research this on their own. There was a Jacqueline, Dr. Jacqueline Drew of the Griffith Criminology Institute in Australia, and uh, Sherry Martin of the National Fraternal Order of Police wrote a research article not long ago, and it. It starts off in the abstract in the beginning. It, it, it references a study based on close to about 4,000 uh, police officers across the United States. And one of the excerpts is that uh, employee assistance programs like the ones I was just mentioning, EAP services, peer supports, formal, informal debriefings with managers, colleagues, chaplaincy services, peer support, were identified as, identified as some of the most common types of wellness programs provided by agencies. Were also among the most effective wellness services as identified by officers who had access them. But something a little bit later on in the article is 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 interesting. Um, it says similarly in a national nationwide nationwide survey of law enforcement officers conducted by the NFOP in 8, 2018, nearly 80 percent of the respondents reported being aware of the services we're talking about, but only 20 percent had accessed them, and that's likely because of the the trust, the confidentiality, all, all the things we talked about before, and all of that to say, uh, to drive the point home of the importance of sometimes outside behavioral health services from your fire departments, your police departments that have amazing services, but but for no fault of their own, the members have a stigma in in, in accessing them. And that's why, you know, Forge Forge works closely with the VA. We have a memorandum of agreement, one of first of its kind with the VA, and work closely with their uh, Office of Suicide Prevention. Um, uh, Allison, you mentioned getting into the community. Um, I work with Allison's counterpart, uh, Amy Milheiser, in the Northport VA, and uh, we're we're part of the uh, Northport uh, VA's uh, Veteran Suicide Prevention Coalition, and and we hold uh, we call it Vet Fest. It's um, the Veterans Resource Fair. You know, we could we could communicate these these messages via podcasts and and all these different platforms, but really nothing replaces the in person, in the community, face to face. Hey, I'm a veteran like you. I'm a former first responder like you. Um, you know, and having that one on one communication is important. But to answer your question, yes, these uh, the fire department, the police department, EMS, um, they're doing a lot by way of suicide prevention through. Um, all of these different EAPs and health and wellness and peer support programs. That's great. And I, this is a terrible segue into my next uh, <laughs> case. So, uh, as we wrap it up here, you had mentioned, you know, a couple of publications and a little bird told me you might be writing a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of what's going into it, what that process is for you and, you know, go ahead and, and give yourself a little, little plug there for us. Oh, I appreciate you asking. Yes, it's called Living Blue, uh, helping law enforcement officers and their families uh, survive and thrive from recruitment to retirement. Um, I'm proud to say that likely will be available within the next few days. Um, not know how painful the editing process was. Uh, <laughs> didn't know there were more than one type of editor, uh, but I met... Um, 
I now am happy to say my my friend and consider her part of my family, my co-author Barbara Rubel. Barbara um, wrote a book called uh, I didn't say but I didn't say goodbye, and it's about her mom and dad, um, her who were both NYPD officers, um, and her dad died by suicide, um, and that's what what the, the premise of the book is all about. Um, I read it and it moved me and I was just getting into the, the behavioral health space and I was writing at the time and long story longer, we, we connected and we, we started this process of, of writing living blue together, um, a couple of years ago. And we're finally coming to, it's finally, finally seeing it come to, uh, to be real. So, um, very, very excited about it. Congratulations. And when it does come out, if you want to forward us the link, we'd be happy to share it with our staff. We'll share it with everyone, you know, get the link on with this podcast. So anyone that's listening, is, remember it's called Living Blue. Take a look out for that. Is there anything else going on, um, Allison, in the VA that you wanted to talk about? Is there any programs or any special events coming up as we kind of wrap up here? Something you want to share? Uh, sure. Uh, I think something um, that many people may not necessarily know about um, is uh, a recent uh, service that became available for veterans who are experiencing uh, uh, or who are seeking treatment related to suicide. The VA now provides uh, emergency suicide care and treatment for veterans, whether they use the VA or they use community hospitals or community uh, facilities. And this is called um, the Compact Care Act that uh, became active uh, earlier this year. And um, the Compact Act will, it really takes the burden of uh, the financial burden of the veterans when they're experiencing or have gone through a suicidal crisis. So the VA pays for treatment related to a suicidal crisis, including transportation via ambulance, inpatient or residential treatment for up to 30 days, and um, outpatient care for up to 90 days, including um, social work services. Um, so any community provider who has treated a veteran or is treated a vet is treating a veteran for uh Anything related to a suicidal crisis, whether it's an attempt or aftercare for that, um, they can be reimbursed for care and the veteran should not be billed for that. So um, the way to do that is to report um, this encounter to the VA and there is a particular um, uh, telephone number and email that can uh, get uh, a provider started with that. Um, so they can do that either by calling the uh, community community care reporting line, which is 844-724-7842. Or they could do the online reporting um, by going to emergencycarereporting.communitycare.va.gov. So again, that's emergency care reporting.communitycare.va.gov. And uh, that's under the Compact Act. Um, I know uh, earlier, earlier you had mentioned um, ways um, that someone uh, could reach the VA. So anyone looking to get in touch with uh, any of the VA medical centers in New York City, 
New York Harbor specifically, because Bronx has a separate system. Um, the number for the Brooklyn VA is 718-836-6600. So again, that's 718-836-6600. And the number for the Manhattan VA Medical Center at 23rd Street is 212-686-7500. Again, 212-686-7500. And Jason, the number to reach you again? Uh, direct is 646-777-2350. And the office is 888-224-7312. Uh, and all these numbers will be posted. And remember, everybody out there, if you are struggling with suicide, that number again is 988 for the crisis hotline. You can call, chat, or text with that number. So uh, 988, just remember, pass that along to someone. Your local problem gambling resource center, can be reached at one eight three three here to help one eight three three four three seven three eight three four. I want to thank my guests Jason Palomera and Allison Lamard so much for being with us. We really learned a lot. We really appreciate the work you're doing. Um, it makes us it makes us proud to have partners who like exhibit that same care. And when you talk to them, you can hear it and you understand where they're coming from. And it really means a lot to have partners like you in the community. So you know, thank you, thank you for all the work that you're doing. If there's anything else you want to share, if not, it was great meeting you. And Colleen, thank you for being here. Everybody out there, stay safe. Have a great holiday season and reach out for help. We're here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Hidden Addiction Podcast.